This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Ten years ago, I worked as a fact checker and screener at a public radio station. My job was to make sure that the information that reached listeners was true and verifiable, and I was very good at it. The day the radio station closed, I took home a single box of files destined for the incinerator. I've remained its sole custodian ever since. There's a reason I saved this one box, and there's a reason no one else has ever seen its contents. These were America's lost stories. These were the stories that didn't pass muster with our less intrepid fact-checkers, those who would dismiss the unusual and impossible out of hand. These stories died in darkness, forsaken, forsworn, and forgotten. Forgotten, that is, by everyone but me. My name is Richard Niles, and these are the stories of the American Beyond. I'm currently sitting in front of the largest of all the files in my collection, a weighty compilation of documents simply labeled Sock Bottom. These items, which include private and public interviews, audio recordings, and hours of filmed footage spanning decades, tell the tragic story of Jack and Sarah Carver, best known for breathing life into one of the Northwest's most beloved local children's programs. It's a story that begins in 1985 in the small town of Keeling, Minnesota, with the Carvers recently married and fresh out of school. Jack worked as a copywriter for a local television station, while Sarah worked as a substitute teacher for elementary schools in their district. They were happy, by all accounts, including their own, and they were both well-known among friends and family for their affable natures and good humor. Sarah Carver, in particular, thrived in her position, winning a number of district-level performance awards over a two-year period before being assigned to substitute for a teacher on maternity leave at School Redacted in the spring of 1985. Sarah was personally recommended for this class after multiple failed attempts to find a long-term replacement. In an interview years later, she recalled how she rose to this new challenge. I don't want to use the word difficult, she said. Children aren't difficult, they're complicated. These were good kids, but it was late in the year and they were very attached to their teacher, so the school requested me, and I went home after the first day thinking I'd already blown it. That happens. It's never personal. Brass tacks, these kids just really wanted their teacher back. But that wasn't happening anytime soon, and we needed to find someone else they'd listen to consistently until the end of the school year. So, I made someone. Using only one unworn white sock, three sheets of yellow construction paper for hair, and a single split black marble for eyes, Sarah Carver created a simple sock puppet. She named her Lulu. In a 1989 interview, Sarah said, Lulu was much more popular with the class than I was. She was the fun one, while I got to take up everyone's homework. Lulu became so popular during the spring, she and Sarah spent the fall fielding requests to substitute from schools all over the district before reuniting that December with Lulu's original class to perform with them in the annual holiday pageant. That was the first time Jack Carver ever saw Sarah and Lulu interact with children. He spoke of this night in a 1989 interview for Puppet Masters bi-monthly magazine. It's one thing to know your wife is a celebrated educator. It's another to see it in practice, he said. I knew immediately I was seeing something special, And I wanted to bring that to the world. 
Jack introduced Sarah to two programming producers at the station, Todd Wilson and Bradley Shaw. According to investigators and Jack Carver's death years later, Wilson and Shaw were actively seeking to capitalize on the exploding market for syndicated children's television at that time, and they immediately ordered a pilot episode for a show titled Lulu's House. It was a lot, Sarah told Puppet Masters bi-monthly. I was very comfortable speaking in front of a classroom, but the idea of being on TV as myself weirded me out. And Lulu needed a companion, so I asked Jack to make one. Quoting Jack Carver, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I bought some dark green felt and some chicken wire and assembled what we call a hand and rod puppet, uh, which is where you manipulate the mouth with one hand and use a very thin rod to manipulate the arms. It was very crude, featureless, aside from the mouth and eyes. Sarah said he looked like a little pudgy alien. I tweaked pudgy a little, and pudgy was born. As reluctant to appear on camera as Sarah was, Jack was equally reluctant to voice his own creation. They compromised, and when the show went before cameras, Jack manipulated Podgy's arms while Sarah voiced both characters. Lulu's house was pre-taped in an empty storage room at Jack's station and consisted entirely of Lulu and Podgy doing educational comedy routines. It premiered locally in the spring of 1986 at 5 a.m. on Saturday mornings. In an interview shortly before his death in 2007, Jack spoke candidly about the difficulties the show faced early on. The 5 a.m. time slot almost killed us right away, he said. Thankfully, the station managers could tell they had something. They just didn't know what. So they went out and focus-grouped the pilot. I say focus-grouped, with quotes. They hired a couple of guys to spend the weekend at the mall. These guys would round up, you know, any kids they could find, along with their parents, then stuff them all into a room the size of a closet and show them the Lulu pilot. It wasn't a comfortable viewing experience, and that was problem number one. Problem number two, the ratio of boys to girls was something like three to one, maybe higher. So, of course, the focus guys came back and said the kids want more podgy and more ancillary characters. The next week, Lulu's house became podgy and pals, and work began on constructing three new supporting characters. One of those characters was Wendell, a thin gray hand-and-rod puppet with oversized eyes. In addition to him, two other large and complex puppets were added to the show. One of these, Futzeldum, was human-sized and played by a man in a furry blue suit, so heavy it required an internal fan to keep the actor cool during shooting. The other, a character called The Mouth, was an elaborate hand-and-rod puppet the size of a beanbag chair, with a large gaping maw and four independently moving arms. That character required three puppeteers at any given time. Sarah Carver's own sister, Allison Billings, voiced the character of Wendell and in recent years spoke candidly about her time on Podgy and Pals and why she thinks she was chosen for the role. If I had to guess, I think Sarah brought me on board because she was feeling outnumbered at that point. It wasn't just the new characters. The tone of the show changed pretty drastically. It became less Sesame Street, more Muppet Show, less educational, more slapstick comedy. Sarah always said none of this bothered her, but I'm skeptical. I knew how much it meant to her personally that the show was built around Lulu, but suddenly she was essentially a side character. Whether she admitted it or not, that had to be hard on her. 
For his part, Jack Carver pushed back against his sister-in-law's speculation, insisting Sarah remained a creative lead throughout the show's five-year run. Everything went through Sarah, from script to screen, Jack said. Was the show exactly what we envisioned from the start? Of course not. But Sarah was very realistic about the creative process and how much sway producers can have when they're holding all the purse strings. In spite of these changes, or perhaps because of them, Podgy and Pals became increasingly popular over a five-year period. At the height of its run in 1991, it was syndicated in multiple markets across the American Northwest, and Jack and Sarah Carver's creations were featured on lunchboxes, t-shirts, and even a limited edition comic book. The entire franchise seemed on the verge of iconography. This burgeoning success was stopped in its tracks, however, when Sarah Carver was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in the winter of 1991. Podgy and Pals was put on immediate hiatus while Sarah underwent radical chemotherapy treatment. It's impossible to overstate how frustrating that was for her, Jack said in 2007. She wanted to keep working like normal, and she would have, but she was just too sick. I've never seen anyone so sick. The doctor said, we'll do our best to save you, but to do it, we're going to have to damn near kill you. They weren't kidding. The aggressive treatment protocols appeared to pay off. Sarah was declared cancer-free in the spring of 1993. By then, the Carvers had already started new episodes of Podgy and Pals and were excited to return to the set in the hopes of returning to air that fall. It was not to be. Sarah's cancer quickly recurred and after a nearly two-year-long battle, she died on November 5th, 1993. It was a day her sister Allison would never forget. I remember specifically it was the, the first real snow of the season, Allison said. She always liked the snow. When we were kids, she'd play in it until Mom forced her to come inside. She wasn't awake much at the end, but I, I opened the blinds for her just in case. Hours later, she was gone. While Allison Billings spoke extensively of her sister in the years after her passing, Jack Carver receded from public view entirely. He explained why in an extended interview with a now-defunct fan site 13 years later, in 2006. I once heard someone call grief the unwanted visitor, he said. That's horrifyingly accurate. It was always there every minute. It was there when I went to sleep. It was there when I woke up again. So one day, I packed a bag, went to a quiet little place in the woods, and waited for my unwanted visitor to leave. But it never did. That might have been the end of this story, were it not for the former executive producers of Podgy and Pals, Todd Wilson and Bradley Shaw. From a 2006 interview with Shaw, Podgy's always been one of our favorite properties, and we wanted to honor the life of Sarah Carver by bringing these characters back to the screen and the homes of children everywhere. We genuinely believe that's what she would want if she were alive today. Jack Carver, who only emerged from seclusion after being approached by Wilson and Shaw to run a rebooted Podgy and Pals in 2006, saw the situation differently. In the previously mentioned fansite interview, he declared... It's a bullshit cash grab. I'm probably not supposed to say that, but that's what it is. 
Wilson and Shaw were looking to cash in on something they owned the rights to with minimal effort. The end. This interview was only the start of a long and often contentious production process. According to Allison Billings, Todd and Brad came to me about a revival around the same time they went to Jack. They wanted me to voice Wendell, but they also wanted me to voice Paji and Lulu. I told them I would not be comfortable taking Sarah's place, and they basically implied the show was happening with or without me, but they preferred that I be involved. Per Jack Carver, I told them outright, if they recast Lulu, I'd make their lives hell, and they knew I could do it. We spent a lot of time together in the 80s. That son of a bitch really snowed us, Todd Wilson told investigators following Carver's death in 2007. He pitched us what he called a more mature version of the old show, with more adult themes of loss and grief and that kind of bullshit. We took that in good faith and said, okay, fine, do your thing, whatever you need. Jesus, lesson learned, I guess. Despite Jack Carver's promise to deliver a more adult-themed podgy show, Wilson and Shaw still expected something they could syndicate as a children's show. That, they argued in court filings following Jack Carver's death, is not what they got. Carver ultimately delivered a pilot script and season one breakdown for a series called Sock Bottom. The new show would still focus on Podgy, but found him recovering from a failed attempt on his life by his one-time pals, an attempt that left Lulu dead and Podgy himself horribly disfigured. To reflect these profound injuries, the Podgy puppet itself was redesigned to give it the appearance of having undergone crude skin grafts. Gone were the jokes and educational asides that made Podgy and Pals so popular, replaced by extraordinarily graphic content, including profane language, gun violence, and drug use, as Podgy hunted down and executed each of his former friends. The colorful school and treehouse sets of years past became grimy back alleys bars and strip clubs. The season-long revenge storyline culminated in Paji furiously confronting God as played by Carver himself. Wilson and Shaw, already in a signed agreement to produce 11 episodes of, quote, a mature, adult-themed Paji-centric show, unquote, allowed Carver to move forward on Sock Bottom. Lemons and lemonade, Todd Wilson said later. Was it a show we could sell to kids? Hell no. Was it a show we could sell to a cable network? We were willing to bet it was. Despite Jack Carver being given free reign to make the show he wanted to make, the production was plagued with problems that Wilson and Shaw would later attribute to Carver's, quote, bizarre and erratic behavior throughout the filming process, end quote. According to a sworn deposition given by Todd Wilson, One night, I go for a smoke behind the set and find Jack screaming his head off at this expletive-deleted podgy puppet. No one else around, just him and the puppet, which is sitting on the ground maybe four or five feet away. And Jack's not just screaming, he's sobbing. This was a grown man in absolute hysterics, and he was yelling, I'm sorry, at this puppet, over and over. I'm sorry. I've never seen anything like it, and I hope I never do again. Bradley Shaw backed this up in his own statement. Jack regularly talked to the puppets when he thought no one was watching, Shaw said. He'd have full, often very emotional conversations with Paji in particular. 
Sometimes he'd yell or cry or throw things. I've worked with so-called eccentric creatives. I know they have their quirks, and I understand Jack was working through some painful things on set, but this felt like something else altogether. In hindsight, it was one of multiple red flags that should not have been ignored. Among these other red flags were the state of Jack's on-set office. Allison Billings described the state of it as such. The bottles were the first thing you'd notice because they were everywhere. He clearly had unaddressed addiction problems. The smell was overwhelming. Aside from the empties, there were also pages and pages of notes and sketches all over the room. Hundreds of them, half of which were illegible, either because you couldn't read the handwriting or because they were gibberish. The sketches were creepy, weird repeating symbols and patterns, really creepy expletive deleted. I'm not convinced they were related to the show at all, and if they were, they never made it to the final drafts. All told, the first season of Sock Bottom was to be 13 episodes long, most of which were filmed in their entirety before a shocking onset accident shut down production for good on April 3rd, 2007. Todd and I weren't always on the set, Bradley Shaw attested, but we were there that night because we wanted to watch them shoot this scene where Jack Carver plays God. It would be the first time we'd seen any of these characters interact with an actual human being on screen. So it was kind of a big deal. I guess we were also a little curious to see how Jack would play it. A leaked copy of the script details the scene in question. It reads, Paji, you took her from me. Why? Why would you do that? God slash Jack. I'm so sorry, Paji. I didn't want to. Paji. Expletive deleted. Your apologies. Tell me why you did it. Why did you kill Lulu? God slash Jack. I had to. I was hurting so much. I thought if I could express it, if I could get the poison out. Paji. We were happy. We could have been happy forever. God, Jack. I know. And I'm so, so sorry. Paji. Sorry? You're sorry? God slash Jack. I'll make it up to you. Give me time. We'll work through this together, I promise. At this point in the script, Paji screams and fires his gun at God slash Jack with no effect. Paji then breaks down sobbing and is comforted by God slash Jack. But that's not what happened on set. From Allison Billings' account to investigators, We were doing the scene, and there came a point when I was supposed to scream as Paji, and then the gun effect would go off. So I screamed, and the gun effect went off, and then Jack was supposed to approach Paji. Only he didn't. I thought he'd missed his cue and expected him to cut, or at least reset the effect and take it back a few lines. But then he dropped to the floor, and it was obvious something had gone wrong. From Todd Wilson's account of that night, I thought he had a heart attack, or maybe a stroke. It never occurred to me there'd been some kind of accident until I saw the blood pooling. Paramedics responding to Bradley Shaw's 911 call attempted to stabilize Jack Carver on site before transporting him to Redacted, where he was declared dead by medical officials. 
the cause of death? An apparent gunshot wound to the chest from what appeared to be a 9mm firearm, not unlike the prop fixed to Paji's hand. Investigators could only speculate as to the precise bullet caliber because the round passed through Jack Carver entirely and was never recovered by investigators. Per Bradley Shaw, I have no explanation for it. To my knowledge, the only gun on set that night was Podgy's prop gun, and that should not have been capable of firing. There's no excuse at all. It should never have happened. Of course, the question regarding this incident has never been, should it have happened, but rather, how did it happen? And that is a question that has never been answered, despite multiple investigations, legal challenges, and endless speculation. Was it a random tragic accident? Was it a deliberate act by someone with access to the set? Possibly even Jack Carver himself? Was Jack in touch with something supernatural or otherworldly? Did that something reach out and touch Jack in kind? The Sock Bottom file is rife with documents and other pieces of evidence supporting and disproving all of these theories to some degree or another. Far too many to pour through in a single episode. And so I keep returning to it, examining and re-examining its contents, determined to eventually make sense of one of the strangest mysteries in this, The American Beyond. Today's episode was produced by Justin Yandel and Chris Vanderkay. Funding was provided by a generous grant from the Anatomy of a Screen Foundation. I'm Richard Niles. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The American Beyond, a fiction podcast. Join us again next time. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.